Bibles up uh, to Philippians 2. We're in Philippians chapter 2. Um, that's where we're going to be uh, this week, and then we'll be there again next week as well. Philippians chapter 2. What we're doing is we're... Um, if you weren't here last week, uh, what we talked about was that uh, if you don't understand the incarnation of Christ, then you, you can't understand Christmas. If you don't understand the incarnation, then you're not going to really understand what it is you're celebrating this time of year. And it is vital that Christians understand. We're not, we're not ever going to fully grasp the incarnation, but uh, it is vital that we understand that God became man. Okay, and too often, what happens is we focus on, on Jesus simply as a man, and we, we kind of forget his divinity. We forget who he actually is. We forget where he's sitting even today. Okay, so uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses uh, really 6 through 11 demonstrate the incarnation and really puts a spotlight on the humility of Jesus Christ. And so that, that's what we're going to look at today. So remember last week we talked about Christ and how he stepped down from his position uh, when he became man. That's what we focused on last week. This week we're going we're gonna to look at a couple of things. You know, what happened uh, when, he, when he became a man? What, what, are, what is the impact of the incarnation? That's what we're going to look at uh, both today and next week and, and leading up to Christmas. So um, uh, let's, let's read the scripture. Verses 6 all the way through 11 says this, and, and this is talking about Christ, all right? So Philippians chapter 2, starting with verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Again, what we see um, is, is a spotlight on the humility of Christ. And, and it, it's not just talking about his humility, but it, it's a demonstration because what we see is who he is. And that's what we talked about last year or last week, the divinity of Christ. He is God the Son. This is not just a good man. This is, this is God. He's the one that created everything with just his words. And he becomes a man. So last week he left his position. Now what we're going to look at uh, real quick is, is that he became a servant. In verse 7, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. When he became a man, he became a servant, not a king. Okay? Um, this is exactly as uh, Isaiah had prophesied that, that he would be a servant. Hebrews chapter 10 says, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. And notice again, in verse 7, he wasn't just acting like a servant. He wasn't just pretending to be a servant. He wasn't playing the part of a servant. He became a servant. When, when Jesus became a man, he was not born in a palace. Uh, it, it was not celebrated in the temple, the holiest place in the world at the time. Uh, he was not celebrated in the temple. Uh, he, he, was not, he was not crowned. He, nothing, there was nothing special about him. There was nothing royal about him. If, had you witnessed it, on earth, he became a servant to poor parents. 
Verse, in verse 7, when it says taking the form or, or having taken upon him the form, that's, that's the word we talked about last week, morph. And we talked last week about how it's kind of the, the inner uh, being, right? And so what we have here is it's using that same word. He took on kind of the inner nature of a servant. He became a real, true, genuine, honest servant. That's what he came to do was to serve. And we see this demonstrated in his life as well. This is not, we're not only talking about the cross, although the cross is the greatest demonstration of his service. We see, if you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, we see Christ serving continually, continuously. All right, Luke chapter 22. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. I'm among you as the one who serves. In Mark chapter 10, uh, Jesus says this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. John chapter 13, uh, we see it, it's, uh, it's discussing the Last Supper. And Jesus comes in and his, his disciples have dirty, nasty feet. And what does Jesus do? He gets down on his knees, wraps a towel around his waist, and he washes the feet of his disciples. He washes the feet of, the, of his followers, essentially. And what does he say when he does it? He says, the servant is not greater than his Lord. We do as I do. We see him in service all the time. Jesus, as he lived his life, he, he had a life devoted to serving. Now, don't get me wrong, he also had a, a life devoted to teaching and to ministering, but his leadership and his ministry were centered around the fact that he served. We see him serving all the time. And again, the, the ultimate act of service was the cross. He served his father. His father invited him to come into the world as a servant to work out the redemption of the world, and he did that. He, he willingly became that servant. So he left his position. He left his position on the throne of heaven and became a servant. But in order to do that, he also had to enter into sin-infested humanity. That's what he had to do. He couldn't do it from, from heaven or you know, space or some other planet or something like that. He couldn't, he couldn't do it there. He had to touch sinful man on his own level. So that abandoning his position and accepting a servant's place meant that he had to approach sinful people. Again, look at verse 7. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. I want you to focus on that last phrase there, being born in the likeness of men. That was the only way that his mission could be accomplished. Okay, He was becoming in the likeness of men. The idea is not there that he was created, uh, but that he, was, that he was God and always has been God, and then he became a man. He kind of changed in, uh, into a man. Okay, so we've got to deal with this a little bit. He pre-existed eternally as God. Okay, so when Jesus was born, you know, on the night when he was in the manger, and, and we see that, that was not when God the Son came into existence. That was not when Jesus came into existence. He had pre-existed uh, you know, from eternity past. He always was, or, or as he says, I am. He was always there. He wasn't created upon his human birth. He was then becoming man. 
He had always been in existence. So probably the, the proper way to use this is to kind of talk about a change that happened with him, okay? And saying that Jesus, who always was in the form of God, was becoming in the likeness of men. He was, there was a change that happened to him. And it was a process. He was born and he grew in wisdom and stature. Luke 2, 52 says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. He was becoming in the likeness of men. By the word likeness here is important. What it's saying is he was uh, becoming the same as men. And this is, this is the part that gets confusing because last week we focused on Jesus' divinity, that he is God. He is God the Son. That's in his nature that can never, ever be, be taken away from him, that he, he can't change. In other words, he can never not be God. But what we see here is that Jesus changed into the likeness of men. He's becoming in the likeness of men. It's not that he looked like a man. It's not that he was kind of God in a shell, just kind of wearing a costume. He is completely God and completely, entirely, unchangeably God. But then at the same time, completely, fully man. It's not in either case that he appeared to be God or only appeared to be man. He was or is fully God and was fully man. Now, this is, uh, this is something called the hypostatic union. Okay, this doctrine is difficult to grasp, trying to, trying to grasp the idea of the two natures of Christ being fully God and fully man. Okay, uh, what this deals, let's break this down a little bit. The two natures of Jesus refers to the doctrine that the one person, Jesus Christ, had two natures, divine and human. Again, and it's the theological term or the doctrinal term here is called the hypostatic union. Early church figures use the term uh, to describe the teaching that these two distinct natures, divine and human, coexisted simultaneously in Jesus Christ. Now, the aim was to defend the doctrine that Jesus was truly God and truly man. So often, so uh, throughout history, throughout the history of the church, heresies have sprung up because what they'll do is they'll focus and they'll say, well, Christ was, only God, Christ was God only. He wasn't actually a man. He was only God. And in spiritually, he looked like a man. That's a heresy because then Jesus couldn't be our high priest. He couldn't represent us. Or uh, other heretics would say, well, he was only a man. He wasn't actually God. He was only a man. And he, he, uh, you know, God created him and all of those things. Uh, that's obviously a heresy. Jesus is, was both God and both man at the same time. Okay? And uh, let me just say that I don't think anyone actually fully understands that concept other than to say it's a mystery and, and you know, I'll ask him when I get to heaven. Uh, maybe, maybe he'll fill me in on, on the details. But uh, just understand that Jesus uh, was fully God, fully man. So last week we talked about the divinity of Christ, and I, today I want to talk a little bit more about the humanity of Christ. He had everything that all men have. He absolutely did. Okay? Uh, he was in every sense a man, according to this passage. He was uh, genuine. He had all the attributes of humanity. He wasn't just, again, he wasn't just God in a shell posing as a man. He was a man. And everything that men have except for one thing, and that one thing is sin. But sin is not what makes us men or, or women. Sin is not what makes us human. 
Adam was a man before he was a sinner, wasn't he? You and I will be glorified uh, men and women throughout eternity once, you know, and at the end times. So to be a man does not necessarily mean that you have to sin, although all men other than Christ do sin. The Bible is clear. Christ was without sin, but he was a man. In fact, I would say that he was, he was the greatest man that there ever could be. He was everything we could ever hope to be as a man or as a woman because of his sinlessness. So he was, he was pure. He was fully man in the essence of his humanity. They're really at the deepest point. He was the perfect man. But look at verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He also, he was found in human form. Not only was he a genuine man, and deeply in, in, in his nature, all that a man is, but he took the outward form of a man as well. He didn't come to the first century with a 21st century outfit speaking American English. He was not, he was not a, uh, he wasn't born in Palestine with blonde hair and blue eyes. And I don't care what those cheesy pictures of Jesus demonstrate, right? It's not who he was. He, he's, um, it, it's not like he came out of nowhere and was a complete outsider. It's, it's, he's not Marty McFly showing up out of nowhere, right? He didn't drop like some visitor and, and, and totally stand out. He was born of a Jewish mother. He lived in a little tiny village of Nazareth. He ate the way they ate and spoke the language they spoke. He, he walked places like they did. Uh, he wore clothes that they wore. He took care of himself the way that they did. He drank what they drank. In other words, he lived the lives. Uh, he, he, he observed their customs and their cultures. He lived in their context. That's who he was. He adapted to the... Uh, to the way that they lived. He was man at the deepest part of his nature, and he adapted to that man in the context that he was living in. Just like other people, he was born. He had a mother and, and a father. He was wrapped in swaddling cloths, and, and he grew up. He had siblings, and he learned to trade. He got hungry. He got thirsty and sleepy. He got, he got tired. He, he, he wept. Just like other men, he was destined to die. He suffered pain. He rejoiced. He was hated, just like other men. He was a man in every way. There's a Christmas carol, and I'm sorry if I ruin it for you, um, but it just gets it wrong, right? And, uh, and I, ha I had to I had to ask Alex to make sure we weren't singing it today before I made fun of it. Um, but th there's, a, there's a Christmas carol uh, called Away in the Manger. And uh, maybe you love that song. It's fine. You, you can love that song. It's, uh, but in the song Away in a Manger, it says, The cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. And that's ridiculous. Uh, because uh, you mean to tell me that because he's God, he didn't cry? All babies cry. And it isn't necessarily a sign of sin that a baby cries. He cried when he was a man. Why can't he cry when he's a baby? Absolutely he wept. He was a human. I, I'm, sure, I'm sure his mom had a hard time with his crying, just like every mother of a young infant. 
he laid his privileges aside. He became a servant. And he engaged with sinful humanity. But when he did that, he, he did more. He, he also adopted a, a selfless posture. Again, in verse 8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse 8 says, He humbled himself. And, and I want to focus on that for a moment. And I, I hope that you understand how incredible this statement is. When we're talking about Jesus Christ, we are talking about God the Son. And it says, He humbled himself. This is the one that the book of Hebrews says, for whom and by whom all things were created. And he humbled himself. Do you ever think about the humility of Christ? And and I don't mean just the fact that that he lived as a man and and he walked as a servant and all of that stuff. Think about this. He's, He's washing the feet of the disciples. And he's the one that designed their brains. He's hungry for food, and it was, it, was him who, it was him who created the wheat that he needed for bread. He created the universe with his words, and here he is thirsty. The place of humility. He, he adopted a selfless posture. He's absolutely selfless. Think about it. Humility is a trait that you and I could use more of, Okay? We absolutely could. If you, if you disagree with me on that point, that just proves my point, by the way. Okay? Um, you and I could use more of it. You and I are prone to sinful pride. We think too much of ourselves. We think of ourselves too often. That's sinful because we're not God. Okay? When I, when I think that I'm great and when I think that I'm greater than I actually am, it's sinful because I am not God. Jesus is God. And he deserves all glory and all honor. Jesus deserves to be worshipped day and night for the next million millenniums. Jesus doesn't need to be humble. He is the very embodiment of glory. The, The chief end of mankind is to glorify him forever. And yet he humbles himself to save us. Think about that. That he he stepped away from his position to save us. He is the king of the new heaven and the new earth. His own radiance will be the light of the new heaven and the new earth for all of eternity. Yet he humbles himself. Who am I that the king of glory should serve me? Who who are we that, that the one who the angels praise should die? I love it in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, you can't even decide what hair color is yours? You don't even get to choose if your hair is black or gray. That's me paraphrasing Jesus, by the way. He's saying you, you, you can't even control if, if your hair is, what color your hair is. You're, you're nothing. It's true. I'm in control of nothing. Jesus is the one who created the universe with his words. He's the one that, that thought up the, the cosmos, he's the one that decided where every star should go and where every snowflake should fall. And he humbles himself. Humanity, all of humanity, was created to glorify and to worship him. And what does he do? He humbles himself for our benefit. 
Look, if, if you are a Christian and the thought of, of Christ stepping away from his throne on heaven and humbling himself, if this thought does not punch you in the chest, then I'm not sure what's going on. Because the, the God of heaven, the one who, de- who deserves to be glorified and worshipped for all of eternity, that he should be born in a manger and live the difficult servant's life, a life of poverty, and then to be hated to be spit on and humiliated, tortured, physically beaten to death, the, the, the beard ripped off his face, his body beaten and mangled so much that if you looked at him, you wouldn't even recognize him as a man, the Scripture says. He humbled himself in that way so that you can be saved. Humility is the theme of Christmas. It really is. Humility is the theme of Christmas. St. Augustine, um, he's a a brilliant theologian from, uh, what is it, the 4th century. Um, He said this. He described Christ's humility this way. He said, By whom all time was created was made flesh and born in time for us. He, without whose divine permission uh, no day completes his course, wished to have one of those days for his human birth. In the bosom of his father, he existed before all the cycles of the ages. Born of an earthly mother, he entered on the course of the years on that very day. The maker of man became man, that he, ruler of the stars, might be nourished at the breast, that he, the bread, might be hungry, that he, the fountain, might thirst, that he, the light, might sleep, that he, the way, might be wearied in the journey, that he, the truth, might be accused by false witnesses, that he, the judge of the living and the dead, might be brought to trial by a mortal judge, that he, justice itself, might be condemned by the unjust, and he, the discipline, or discipline personified, might be scourged with a whip, that he, the foundation, might be suspended on a cross, that he, courage incarnate, might be weak, and he, security itself, might be wounded, and he, life itself, might die. It says he humbled himself. We cannot overstate that statement. We, 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 can, we, cannot, uh, we, we absolutely should never overlook the fact, as we're reading Philippians 2, that he humbled himself, that Christ humbled himself. But then one of the questions we can ask is, is how humble was he? And you go back to verse 8. How far did he go in his humility? We know that he became mortal. We know that he became a man. But it goes beyond that. He became obedient to the point of death. His death was an act of obedience. We see in Hebrews chapter 5, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. The greatest act of obedience to the Father was in in his death. That was God's will. And even in the garden, Christ is saying, Oh, Father, let this cup pass from me. He says, Not my will, but thine be done. He was obedient to death. He didn't just become mortal. He died. That's the worst that, that a man could ever endure. But not only did he die, he died a horrible death. Even death on a cross, the scripture says. 
it's one thing to die. It's something else to die on a cross. The ancient writers used to say that to die on a cross is to die a thousand times before you take your last breath. The pain is excruciating. It's unimaginable. Um, the suffocation of organs when your body is suspended uh, by those wounds, it's essentially what happens. You slowly uh, suffocate to death as your body shuts down. The pain um, it would go through your body. It really is more than what we conceived. And not to mention the fact that before he was uh, nailed to the cross, he was beaten and bloodied to the point where if they hit him one more time, they thought that he would die. So he endured about two, really two death sentences. They beat him to the point where it was unrecognizable, and then they took him, they laid him on a cross, and they nailed him to a cross and put him up in the air so that the entire city could mock him. The entire city could spit at him. The, the entire city could say, he claimed to be God. Why doesn't he get off of that cross? He says he can save the world. He can't even save himself. He's up there wearing almost nothing, and everyone is mocking him and ridiculing him, humiliating him. And they should be worshiping him. They should be face, their faces should be in the ground. They, they should be on their knees praising him. And instead they're spitting at him, mocking him, ridiculing him. That's how far his humility went. Not only did Jesus face a horrible, awful, physical, torturous death, but he was all alone as well. His disciples abandoned him. The, the followers that, you know, Peter stands up and says, I'll die with you. Right away, he's gone. He's nowhere to be seen. His, his disciples, his followers are gone. But not only that, what happens on the cross? Like we talked about this last week. Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He faced a, a spiritual separation from God the Father. His physical human suffering wasn't enough. He faced spiritual suffering as well. But I would say that the height of Jesus's humility is displayed by some of the words that he says while he's on the cross. As he's looking down at, at the, the Jewish leaders who plotted his murder, as he's looking at the Romans who, who nailed him to the cross and are there overseeing the crucifixion, making sure that nothing happens. He's looking at the crowd that's throwing things at him and spitting at him and humiliating him and saying horrible things to him. What does Jesus say? Jesus looks at him and he says, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. Think about that. Again, this is, this is the God of heaven. This is, this is the one... Oh, when he, meets, uh, when he meets Joshua, he tells Joshua to take his shoes off because it's holy ground. The very ground that he walks on becomes holy. And here he is giving his life up, being tortured and, and spiritually tortured, physically tortured, spiritually tortured. And as he's mocked, as he's looking at those who are doing it to him, he says, Father, forgive them. I think that is the best demonstration of Jesus' humility. And it is beyond comprehension. There is no way we can fully grasp how wonderful and, and majestic and holy uh, God the Son is, Jesus Christ is. And then what he endured as he stepped away from his position and took on the likeness of men and humbled himself. And when we overlook Philippians 2, when we, when we just read on through, when it says he humbled himself, 
or worse off. So what's the Christmas story? Christmas story is that Jesus Christ, God the Son, left his position, became a servant, entered into sinful humanity, demonstrated selflessness. That's the Christmas story. Remember that God became man, the God who created everything with, with his words, the one who parted the Red Sea, the one who made, made Moses' face glow, that God became man, and he humbled himself for his glory and to redeem us. That's Christmas. That's what we celebrate this time of the year. And I think I said it last week, you know, obviously Christmas shouldn't be centered around gifts and Santa Claus and all of that, all of that stuff. And I hear Christians so often say, keep Christ in Christmas, and that's true, but it doesn't go far enough. Of course Christ is in Christmas. Of course Christ is the reason why we celebrate Christmas. But don't just remember that there was a baby there. Worship that baby. Worship him because he is your God. He's your God. He is the one that was sent to save you from the sins that you've committed. And it's only through that baby It is only through Jesus Christ that you can be saved. It is only through that baby born on Christmas night that you can be viewed and declared as righteous and holy by God the Father. It is only through a faith in Jesus Christ that you have any hope whatsoever. There is no other way. It is not your morality. It is not your good works. Jesus Christ and his death, his burial, and his resurrection is the way, is the only way. And your response is to repent and believe. Repent from your sins and believe in Jesus Christ. Declare with your lips that he is Lord. That's your only hope. He humbled himself for his glory and for us. That's Christmas. Reflecting on that this season is infinitely greater than giving an iPad in the name of Santa Claus. I promise you that. It is through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone that you can be saved and never forget the humility that he demonstrated. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for this morning. And Father, we thank you for the fact that that you love us and you care for us, that, that you are a gracious and merciful God. Father, we know that we know that we've failed you. We know that we've turned our backs against you. We know that we've rebelled against you. We know that we are sinners. And we know that we know that we indulged in sin and enjoyed our sin. But through your grace, we're saved. Your Son, Jesus Christ, who humbled himself by becoming a man and giving up his life facing death on the cross father we may not understand everything that it took we might not understand how how jesus can be god and man at the same time we might not understand everything that christ gave up but what we can understand is that salvation comes through a faith in christ and father i pray that if there's someone here who doesn't know you who has no faith in christ doesn't understand what it means to be a Christian or doesn't understand the gospel. God, I pray that you'd reveal yourself to them. I pray that you would convict them of their sins. And I pray that that you would 
you would allow them to come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Pray that you would lead them over to talk to, to one of the elders by the prayer wall so that we can, we can talk about Christ and who he is, what salvation means. Father, we love you, we praise you, and we worship you. We pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.